This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. So those of you who have recently arrived over the past few weeks, been continuing the series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. We've been discussing the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of dhammas. And dhamma here means categories of experience. And so the Buddha is pointing out different elements of the mind and body and how they function in our experience. So included in this fourth foundation are things like the hindrances, the aggregates, the sense fears, the factors of awakening, and the Four Noble Truths. Tonight we'll begin the exploration of the section dealing with the seven factors of awakening. These are qualities in the mind that are referred to as the seven treasures of the Tathagata. The Tathagata is the term the Buddha used to describe himself. So the seven treasures of the Buddha. And these factors of awakening are said to be unique to the Buddha's teaching, this particular formulation. This is from the texts. All those arhant Buddhas of the past attained to supreme enlightenment by abandoning the five hindrances, those defilements of mind that weaken understanding, having firmly established the four foundations of mindfulness in their minds and realized the seven factors of awakening as they really are. The Buddha called these factors anti-hindrances, which is a wonderful phrase, because they counteract those forces in the mind that keep us in delusion. 
So sort of like antifreeze, you know, <laughs> anti-hindrances. They keep our minds from getting congealed and frozen. They're called factors of enlightenment or factors of awakening because they incline the mind towards Nibbana. So what are these seven factors? There's mindfulness. There's investigation of dhammas, which is the wisdom factor. There's energy or effort, virya. There's rapture. There's calm, there's concentration, and equanimity. So just for a moment, reflect on what the mind would be like that had brought these seven qualities to perfection. Just going through the day with mindfulness and wisdom and energy and rapture and calm and concentration and wisdom and just and equanimity and just abiding in that space. Well, that's kind of the promise and the purpose of our practice. There's an entire section of the Samutta Nikaya, which is the Samyutta Nikaya, which is one of the collections of the discourses. It's called the Connected Discourses. There's one section devoted just to the teachings on these seven factors of enlightenment. And I'd like to just read a few short parts of the text to give you a sense of the importance that the Buddha gave to these teachings. This is, this is of central importance on our path. So this is in the Buddha's words. Bhikkhus, I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of awakening. Because these seven factors, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. And this one is my favorite. Then a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? (laughs) Bhikkhus, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. Venerable Sir, it is said, wise and alert, wise and alert. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called wise and alert? Because it is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called wise and alert. So there's our choice. (laughs) Unwise dolt (laughs) or wise and alert. What are we going to do? The instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta for contemplating and developing these factors of enlightenment follow a format that's analogous to the teachings for contemplating the hindrances. 
except that in the end, instead of abandonment, abandoning them, one understands that these factors of awakening are to be cultivated. So here are the Buddha's words from the sutta. These are his instructions. How does one in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the seven awakening factors? Here, if the mindfulness awakening factor is present, one knows there is the mindfulness awakening factor in me. If it is not present, one knows there is no mindfulness awakening factor within me. One knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen factor can be perfected by development. So I'd like to spend some time in these next weeks discussing these factors of enlightenment, exploring in greater depth each one, and seeing how to apply this threefold instruction. First, to see whether the factor is present or not present. And again, the Buddha is not saying to have judgment about this. He's saying, just see. Is the factor present in us? Is it not present in us? That is already being mindful. Second, if it's not present, to know the conditions for it to arise. And third, if it is present, how we can bring it to perfection, how it can be developed. In some ways, applying these instructions, understanding how to practice them, is quite simple. It's not always easy to do, but the way of practicing them is not complicated. And the Buddha gave some hints about how we can cultivate them. He said, and he uses a beautiful image here, he says that just as the, just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor of the arising of the sun, so too good friendship, that is association with the wise, and careful attention are the forerunners and the precursors of the arising of the factors of enlightenment. You know, one of the kind of joys of sitting at the forest refuge, uh, at least for me when I sit here, is after that early morning sitting and just, at least at certain times of the year, you know, walking to breakfast and you just see the dawn coming just before the sun actually rises on the horizon and the sky is so beautiful and you know it's just about to come. And so this image is particularly appropriate you know, for practice here. Just as the dawn is the precursor for the arising of the sun, so good friendship and wise attention, careful attention, is the precursor for the factors of awakening. So what does this mean? It means we need to hear the teachings. That's about having good friends. And then pay attention. Put them into practice. So how do we pay attention? 
What's the means for paying attention? In many different discourses, many different suttas of the Buddha, he says that the four foundations of mindfulness, when developed and pursued, bring these seven factors of enlightenment to perfection. So it's exactly the practice that we're doing. It's practicing the four foundations of mindfulness that lead to the perfection of the factors of enlightenment. And then, as we will see, there's another help to us. That the seven factors actually form a progression with each factor leading and conditioning the arising of the next. So basically, what we have to do is prime the pump of the enlightened mind with the first factor. And if we can prime that pump, then all the rest will follow. Not surprisingly, the first factor of awakening, the one that primes the pump of enlightenment, is mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is the translation of the Pali word sati, S-A-T-I. And this is a term that's profoundly rich in meaning and in application. Sati, the the Pali word, is derived from the root meaning to remember. But it goes far beyond our usual notion in English of memory. It's not so much about memory. There's a very highly regarded contemporary Buddhist and Pali scholar, he's English, his name is R.M.L. Gethin, and he wrote some wonderful books, scholarly books, but in great depth and with great understanding, in which he carefully analyzed all the ways that sati, mindfulness, is used in the suttas and in the Abhidhamma. So he brought together from all of these different sources of the different discourses and the Buddhist psychology all of the ways that this term is used because it is so rich. In its most general sense, and the one we're most familiar with, it signifies attentiveness to the present moment. And that's really how we understand it and how we're practicing. But this attentiveness to the present moment can also be expressed in some very specific ways. And Gethin summed up these various expressions of mindfulness, some of the specific ways the attentiveness is expressed and manifests, in four basic applications. I'd like to go over what these four are because it fills out our understanding. It expands our understanding of the richness of sati. You know, the breadth of what mindfulness really means. 
So the first expression of it is about remembering, but remembering not in the sense of memory, but in the sense of not losing what is right before the mind, not forgetting, not forgetting the present moment's experience. The second, I'm going to go in greater detail list of each of these, but I want to lay out the four. So the second specific application of mindfulness is presence of mind. And what this means is that mindfulness stands near and guards the senses, guards the mind. The third manifestation is calling to mind or remembering again what is skillful and what is not. So this is an important expression of mindfulness that we don't often highlight. It's remembering, calling to mind and remembering what is skillful and what is not. And this broadens our view of what is actually happening. And the fourth particular expression of mindfulness is its close association with wisdom, that is seeing things as they are. So as we look at these four specific aspects of mindfulness, we can begin to understand that mindfulness is the one factor that the Buddha said is always useful. There can never be too much mindfulness. Unlike all the other factors of enlightenment, and all the other wholesome factors, which need to be in balance with one another, You know, we can have too much wisdom out of balance with faith. We can have too much concentration out of balance with energy and vice versa. But mindfulness is always appropriate in every situation. And it serves to bring about and develop and balance all the other factors. So it's a very powerful force in the mind. It is a real power that we are cultivating. Okay, so what was that first first special meaning? The quality of not forgetting, not losing what is right in front of the mind. The example that's given of sati in this regard, it's like a post that's set firmly in the ground. And because it's set firmly, The mind is not wobbling. The mind doesn't forget. It doesn't get lost. It doesn't drift off. And so we could call this or think of this as the basic function or condition for stability of awareness. And so you might think sometimes in every moment of mindfulness, it's almost like planting the flag of sati in every moment. Now we plant it and we become firm in our awareness in that moment. It keeps bringing us back each time we get lost. And when the momentum of this mindfulness, of this stability gets strong, it has what Upandita, Saira Upandita called 
the boomerang effect. He came up with this image after he taught in Australia. And it happens, and we can experience this in our practice, when there's a certain momentum of mindfulness. You know, when it reaches, we could say, a certain velocity or, or momentum, it is like a boomerang that even if we want to distract ourselves, even if we try to send our mind off, it'll just come right back to the moment. That's how well developed it is at that time. So it's very stable. It's very steady. So this is the first aspect of mindfulness. The second is its quality of standing near the mind, thus serving it and guarding it. It means, and it's described as coming face to face with the arising object, rather than you know, a very familiar kind of mindfulness where we're giving sidelong glances at something. We're kind of mindful, we're kind of there, but not actually just face to face with it, seeing, seeing it head on. It's in this function of standing near, standing face to face, that it's a guarding of the sense doors. Tulku Urgin, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters, he wrote about mindfulness in this way. He said, there is one thing we always need, and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is on the lookout for whenever we get carried away by mindlessness. So as I was reflecting on this, I thought of this quality of standing near, kind of in the parlance of the street. And we might say, mindfulness is watching our backs, you know, so that we don't get caught. But then I thought, no, it's not quite watching our backs, it's watching our fronts, you know, so that we're not seduced by the various arising appearances. There's a well-known teaching in the Zen tradition which I think captures this sense of the power of mindfulness that's standing near and standing guard or serving the mind from getting caught up in going out to objects. It's called the Genjo Koan. And it's, it's a from a famous teaching by, teaching by Dogen. He said, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. You know, and it just captures that sense of what the mind is doing is the mind going out to the experience of the myriad things creating the world? Or is the mind at rest in openness letting the myriad things experience themselves? I've talked to many of you in interviews 
about a way of practicing this just by changing our linguistic framework, you know, and framing things in terms of the passive voice, of things being known, a sound being known, a thought being known, a sensation being known. Because when we do that, there's no subject. It takes the subject out of it. There's no one going out to things. Rather, the myriad things are arising, are approaching. The myriad things come forth and experience themselves. This is awakening. The first is not forgetting, not wobbling, planting the flag, planting the post, stability. The second aspect is this standing near to the mind, guarding and serving it, so it doesn't jump out to experience. It allows experience to come in. The third aspect of sati is one that we don't often associate with mindfulness. But in fact, it harkens back to the root meaning of remembering. And here what mindfulness refers to is the calling to mind or remembering, in the Buddha's words, what is skillful and what is not, what is inferior and what is refined, what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. So mindfulness is actually calling this to mind. It's remembering this. And it's this aspect of mindfulness that makes it possible for us to follow the Buddha's instructions about abandoning what is unwholesome and cultivating the wholesome. If we don't call to mind the difference between these states, then we have no way of actually practicing that. Mindfulness here, this meaning of it, becomes a key factor in strengthening our inner moral compass. If we don't remember or call to mind what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, then we simply toss about on the waves of our mental habits, our mental conditioning, often acting out the latent tendencies of various defilements, galaces, because we're not making this discrimination. So this particular facet of mindfulness, calling to mind what is skillful and what is not skillful, is closely related to the arising of two mental states the Buddha called the guardians of the world. And in Pali, these two states are called hiri and otapa. And they're often translated as moral shame and moral fear or moral dread. Now these are factors that are easily misinterpreted and misunderstood and therefore often ignored or overlooked in our culture. But in doing so, by not understanding them, 
and by ignoring the power of them, we are really discarding what can be the basis for a tremendous beauty and strength in our lives and in our society. I find it interesting to reflect on these two words in English. You know, in our complex cultural conditioning of race, of class, of often religious fundamentalism, shame and fear have often been used as vehicles and expressions of oppression. You know, and so there's a whole association with these words in ways that are not and have not been helpful. You know, in many circles, we don't see shame or fear as being particularly wise or compassionate mind states. It's not how we generally think of these two states. So what is the Buddha talking about? when he's referring to them in a particular manifestation as the guardians of the world. He's pointing something out to us that I think is worth looking at. In the Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, Hiri and Otapa, moral shame and moral dread, are two of the universal beautiful factors. That's how they're described. They come right after faith and mindfulness. You know, in the, in the list. And it's said to be universal because they arise in every wholesome consciousness. These qualities are present. So what is moral shame? That's the feeling of sort of repugnance at bodily and verbal misconduct. We feel, it's the feeling of remorse or shame about unwholesome actions. And moral dread or fear refers to a wise fear of wrongdoing with respect to future consequences and also with respect to the kind of fear or dread of the opprobrium of the wise, the disapproval of the wise. And both Hiri and Otapa, this moral fear and moral dread, they both manifest as pulling away from the unwholesome. That's the function of them in the mind, where we pull away from doing what is unwholesome. But a great deal of care is needed to really appreciate and understand the importance of the Buddha's teachings about these two states. And I think it can be illuminating to notice our own reactions, the reactions we have in our own minds to these guardians of the world. Because I noticed some pretty conditioned reactions in my own mind at first. We might have the notion that 
being free of caring what other people think is actually a wiser, more wholesome state. Right? Why, should, why should we care what other people think? And then it would be freer not to. So that could be one response. Or we might have the feeling that shame about one's unskillful actions, either ones that are contemplated or ones already done, that shame is not a psychologically healthy state. You know, so that could be another idea that we have. Of course, it all depends on how this is being held. Because if they're not properly understood, we could use some approximation of Hiryanotapa, not really the states the Buddha is talking about, but some approximation of them, to bludgeon ourselves with guilt, with recrimination, with feelings of unworthiness. And it would be easy to see how we hear these teachings and translate it in our minds in this very unhelpful way. That moral shame means we should feel guilty about things or feel unworthy about things. It's not what the Buddha is talking about. We can hold them, on the other hand, in wisdom. And in this beautiful manifestation, in understanding the beauty of them, they arise out of mindfulness and a very deep caring and respect for ourselves and others. Now, in that sense, they become beautiful qualities of mind. And so this would mean holding a standard of behavior that can inspire us to restraint in those moments when we might be ready to do something that's unskillful. Just in that moment, they can operate in the mind as this great protection for us. Or they can become an inspiration for renewal you know, in the many times we do fall short. In the many times we do unwholesome or unskillful things, but having these factors present in the mind can re-inspire us. In all of these situations, it is mindfulness. And this is, this is one of the expanded meanings of sati. It's the power of mindfulness that calls to mind, that, that reminds us of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So I, I just want to share with you one experience I had on retreat some time ago, which was a vivid and powerful experience of Hiri and Otapa. I had been sitting for some time, and my mind was kind of in this nice, relaxed, open space. And in the relaxation of this, my mind started getting seduced by an extremely engaging and seductive, but somewhat unwholesome fantasy. It was a sensual fantasy that just kept pulling me right in. 
And I was mindful enough to know that it was there. And I was mindful enough to know that it was unwholesome. But I wasn't mindful enough. Somehow something was missing, and I couldn't unhook from it. Right? It had me in its clutches. Or I had it in my clutches. Which <laughs> is probably more accurate. And I didn't have something, something was not in my mind that would have simply allowed the fantasy to be there and then self-liberate into the flow of empty phenomena. So I was watching this come up over and over again and, and really getting pulled into it for days. I mean, it kept coming up repeatedly. And I was trying to work with it in all the ways I knew. And I began wondering, well, what is going to unhook me, you know, from this seduction? And then suddenly, this is after several days, it's like Hiri and Otapa came to the rescue. It was just like reinforcements from the rear, you know, which turned the tide of the battle. And I began reflecting on what this action, you know, in my mind would look like to my friends and my colleagues and my teachers. So actually imagine having done it and then having it have come to the attention of all these people that I respected. Well, it's like magic. As soon as I reflected in this way, immediately, you know, as I actually pictured uh, this whole scenario, there was an immediate arising of what I really considered a wise shame. You know, moral, I wouldn't want these people to know, you know I had done this unwholesome thing. And then it was, it was so amazing to watch the, the factors of mind at work. Immediately, the desirability of the fantasy completely disappeared. Yeah, and I saw the tremendous power, the strength of Hiri and Otapa. That was exactly how it functions. You know, to have us pull back from the unwholesome. And it wasn't, didn't involve self-judgment or self-blame or unworthiness or any of that. It was just a very skillful way of relating to something that was not skillful. And this is why the Buddha called these two factors the guardians of the world. It was like waking up from a dream. You know, and I felt my mind, again, just to be clear and open and balanced, I wasn't caught, I wasn't hooked. How much suffering do we have in our own lives and how much suffering is there in the world when we don't understand the wise practice of these two guardians? There's one verse in the Dhammapada which in one line just encapsulates this whole teaching which when I was reading through you know, the Dhammapada is a collection of the Buddhist, in verse, the Buddhist teachings. This, this one line really, really jumped out at me. 
you know, and resonated, where the Buddha said, no deed is good that one regrets having done. You know, and it just, it just resonated as such good feedback, you know, of recognizing what's skillful, what's not, what's wholesome, what's not. And of course, the power of that understanding and the power of these two guardians of the world is when they come into play before we act. You know, and that provides this great protection and strength and beauty in our lives. So we've talked about mindfulness of sati as not losing or forgetting what's before the mind, about it standing near and guarding the mind so we're not going out to objects creating the world, but letting objects come and arise by themselves, of calling to mind what is skillful and what is not skillful, and how this gives rise to the wholesome states of hiri and otapa, moral shame and moral dread. The last quality of mindfulness is its close association with wisdom, with seeing things as they are. And this comes about through two further applications of mindfulness. And I think you're familiar with both of them. One is bare attention, and one is clear comprehension. I'll just talk very briefly about each one of these. Because both of these are intimately associated with the wisdom factor. The quality of bare attention. In different traditions, this is called different things. Now, sometimes it's called mindfulness, naked awareness, innate wakefulness. It's naked and bare because it's simple, it's direct, it's non-interfering, non-judging. It's like a mirror simply reflecting what comes before it. It's not making up stories about experience. It's just the simple awareness of how things actually are. And there's a, a haiku poem, and I first mentioned this haiku at the very first Dharma talk I gave in Bodh Gaya in 1974. So I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this haiku. <laughs> Although I haven't used it in recent years very much, so I thought I would resuscitate it because it so expresses the quality of bare attention. And it's by the very famous haiku poet Basho. He said, the old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. The old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. That's all. No fanciful description of what he felt like and how romantic the evening was and just the bare attention on what happened. That's the quality. We want to bring plop mind to our practice. 
just moment after moment. Plop, plop, plop. What is it that's actually happening? We can bring this simplicity to our meditation practice and it then gets very simple. Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, you know, expressed the simplicity in the most basic of meditation instructions. He said, sit and know you're sitting and the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. We don't have to do anything else. Sit and know you're sitting. Just bear attention to that experience and the whole Dharma is revealed. In the Satipatthana Sutta itself, the very first instructions on being with the breath, where the Buddha says, breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. That's all. It's incredibly simple. It's this quality of bare attention, simply knowing what's arising, simply knowing what's appearing. Nothing else need be done. Now, often in our meditation practice, we miss the simplicity of this aspect of mindfulness, of bare attention, because we're looking for something special. We think something special should be happening, and so we overlook what is right in front of us. The power and the strength of bare attention does not come from special experiences. It comes from the sustained application of mindfulness, of awareness, that's all. Of whatever it is that's arising. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, right? It's gross, it's subtle, whatever it is. You know, as the Buddha said in this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, to know whether a particular factor of awakening is present or is not present. It's that simple bare recognition, bare attention to the present moment experience. It's not hard to be mindful. The training really is to remember to be mindful. Just to remember to come back again and again. The other aspect of the practice of mindfulness, something that's in close association with mindfulness and is conducive to its arising, is what the Buddha called clear comprehension. And clear comprehension, sampajano in Pali, it means seeing things precisely and accurately from all sides or from different perspectives. And so clear comprehension broadens our practice from a narrow focus you know, on an object to a much broader view of the object in context What is the context of its arising? So there are several ways to train in clear comprehension. It's often applied in our daily activities. 
where we really want to look at what we're doing. And so the first part of the training is knowing the purpose behind an action and knowing whether this action will be of benefit or not of benefit. So I would watch the many choices you make through the day. The choice of to continue sitting or not to continue sitting. The choice of going for some tea or not going for some tea. To go back to your room or not to go back to your room. Whatever. The many, many choices. See if you can bring this aspect of mindfulness to bear, of clear comprehension, suitability of purpose, knowing the purpose. It opens up the possibility of making wise choice. It's as if we're asking the question many times in the day, where is this action leading? You know, what is it developing? Where is it leading? Do I want to go there? Is this how I want to develop the mind? So this is an active, this is an active application of mindfulness. The second aspect of clear comprehension is not only noting, noticing the suitability of purpose, but also whether the timing is suitable, because something could be wholesome, but not the right time. You know, we see this a lot in the Buddha's description of right speech, where he talks about things needing to be true and useful to be worthy of being spoken. So it's not only true, or it's not only beneficial, you know, in action, or wholesome, we have to know, is this the suitable time? Again, that broadens our perspective. The third training in clear comprehension is knowing the proper domain for our mind. And the Buddha referred to this aspect as being the four foundations of mindfulness. He called them pastures. You know, the word for domain is gochara in Pali. And I always like that, just get this image of what are the proper pastures for us to graze in? Well, the proper pastures are the four foundations of the body, feelings, the mind, and the categories of experience, the very things we're practicing. This aspect always reminds us of the task at hand. Whenever we're lost or we're confused about what we should be doing, this aspect of clear comprehension says, contemplate one of the four fields of mindfulness. Yesterday I gave a talk at the Unitarian Church in the neighboring town, Petersham. And after the talk, a woman came up to me, and she had been a yogi at IMS. She was telling me this little incident. She had been um, on vacation and on a ship. And in her room was, you know, one of these maps that laid out you know, the layout of the ship and where the fire exits were and all that. And then there was a little sign, you know, a little arrow that said, you are here. And she said she saw that 
And that phrase became the mantra of our whole vacation. So wherever she was, you are here, you are here, you are here. And she told me this, and I thought, this is going into a Dharma talk. <laughs> because it's such a good reminder of our practice. Whenever you're confused about what you should be doing, you are here. And then take a look. What is it that's here? What's in the body? What's in the mind? It's so simple. So knowing the purpose of an action, the suitability, the timing of an action, knowing the proper domain of practice, and the very last aspect of clear comprehension is non-delusion. And this is the aspect that is the direct link to the next factor of awakening, which we'll talk about next week. Investigation of the Dhammas. This is the wisdom factor. So I'd like to close with a wonderful, we can call it an ode to mindfulness. And it was written by Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who was really one of the great Dzogchen masters. He died uh, some years ago. Um, And it really captures the importance and the power of this first factor of awakening the factor that brings all the others along with it. So he wrote, Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hour. 